there were times where someone would be in contact with an enemy. Let's say the enemy is X metres to the west of here, so you'd start attacking. We had limits of 50 metres for, for rockets and 25 metres for miniguns. And you could fly to those limits and feel fairly safe. But there were times where the enemy were actually inside, so then you had to decide. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes. Just search for Rotary Wing Show and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 53 of the Rotary Wing Show. We're going to air mid-December, so I wanted to share something with you that you can use to make sure you get the or get a useful aviation present this year from your family or significant other. If you've been the recipient of average presents in the past, then listen up and I'll give you the recipe for your best Christmas ever. This method originally comes from a marketer called Dean Jackson. However, we're going to co-opt it for your very own purposes. So here's what you need to do. Now you could do this on paper, but I'm going to suggest it's easier on a computer. You want to start with a blank document. Put the title at the top of the page in bold, larger writing. Attention to the person in charge of making this mix best Christmas ever. Now obviously you're going to put your name in there, unless your name is Mick. So again, that text again is attention to the person in charge of making this mix best Christmas ever. Now, Go online and find six or seven or eight, uh, nine, however many items you want that would make great gifts for you for Christmas. You can put anything on there, but let's stick to flying stuff. So grab a picture from a website and the item name and the price and where they can buy it uh, for you. Uh, you know, it could be a, a trial flight at the local school, your knee board, an iPad mini, a pocket knife, weight and balance uh, app on your phone, headset case, a finger light survival kit, you know, humorous helicopter t-shirt, whatever it is. Now, add these items to your document, just, you know, one under the other. Okay, so to recap, we've got the, the title and then the photos and the description to the names and the prices and where to buy the items that you want, all laid out in your new document. What you're going to do now is you're going to want to print that out and then grab your sheet, grab a highlighter and a thick black pen and grab your list and start highlighting and circling in black and adding arrows to the things that you most want from that list. If you've been listening to this and you haven't been flying yet, then you know you might want to mark up the trial flight option at your local flying school. If you've been out for years and you know maybe your helmet bag is falling apart, so that's the thing you want to add asterisks to next to on the sheet. Now the very last step, and which is the ninja step, is you're going to leave your list lying around the house where the person in charge of making this your best Christmas ever is going to find it. So you've got the title, you've got the things you're looking for, and you've got the highlighting and the, the asterisks and the arrows drawn on it. Now you've made their job of trying to find you a present super easy for doing this, and the chance that you'll get a present you actually want and will actually use are super high. So just leave it lying around somewhere where they're going to bump into it, and it's going to have that title and it's going to grab them. So if you're going to give this a go, and I totally think you should, then snap a photo of your list and share it on the show Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Rotary Wing Show. I'd love to see what you come up with in your list and hear about the results that you get. 
For our interview today, we are joined by Jack Lynch. Jack is a retired wing commander from the Royal Australian Air Force, now living in Brisbane, Australia. Jack's flying career has seen him behind the controls of Vampires, Hueys, which is the main focus today, Sabres, Mirages, Phantoms, PC-9s, F-111s, just as the, the main highlights. Jack held positions as an instructor at the Australian Army and Staff College as the Divisional Air Liaison Officer to the Army First Division. He's been awarded the Member of the Most Excellent Order of the British Empire for his roles as the Project Test Pilot on the reconnaissance version of the F-111. Jack has also worked at the Army Aviation Centre, Oakey, Queensland, in the Landholder Liaison and Airfield Management, Search and Rescue and Aviation Safety role. There is heaps more, but some of that comes out in the interview. You know, we're talking about 50 plus years of aviation experience. I first met Jack, I think, in about 2004, when one of our Sergeant Loadmasters, Rob Knox, arranged for him to come out and talk to the Huey Air Crew at Oakey. And I bumped into him recently at a defence function and finally got the chance to sit down together at my house to record today's interview. Jack, this is unusual for me, again, being able to sort of sit here and, and look at someone while we do the, the recording. So uh, without, <laughs> there's a bit more interaction. Because often over Skype, when you're talking to someone, you know, you're sort of waiting and, and it works out yeah. normally pretty good. Oh, but, I'm sure uh, we'll be fine. Nick. But it's thank you for be yeah, yeah. You know, to join us and, and chat about a huge range of things you've been involved in. So very quickly, um, and I guess before this, we'll, we'll have done a, you know, a bit of a, a bio for you. When was the, the first time you sat in an aircraft? was when I was about 10 or 12 at an air show. They used to call it an air pageant in those days at Benalla in northeast Victoria. And uh, I went for a ride in a fox moth. What's that? It was a it was like a tiger moth, except it had a cabin uh, down forward of where the pilots sat uh, for about three people. And then the pilot's cockpit back further. The cabin was in between the pilot and the engine. And uh, I remember taking off and seeing everything all of a sudden look so neat. Yep. And I just loved the movement. I was hooked from the, the very first moment. Yeah, there's not too many people sort of go into aviation kicking and screaming. It's sort of a, you know, it's very much a, a pool type thing. It is too, yeah. And I, I lived on a farm at the time and I was always reading about aircraft, always bought aircraft magazines of the day and read as much as I could about aeroplanes. Yeah. And every opportunity later on, when I was at high school, to get a ride in an aeroplane, uh, I'd take it. In those days in... The, the late 50s, uh, later by the name of Gert McKenzie in Melbourne, had a flying school at Moorabbin and also one at Banala. Okay, yep. And the brother of a kid I went to school with was learning to fly and I, he took me flying in a chipmunk. That was my first taste of aerobatics. Okay. So that, that, I was really hooked on that as well. So I guess it's different because I find aerobatics, you know, I just can't appreciate it because I'm feeling sick the whole time. And all the way through, you know, Tamworth, I couldn't wait to get that section out. Yeah, you know, I really uh, feel for anyone that doesn't enjoy it because I don't like the hack-flick zoom of competition aerobatics. I like the beautiful mathematics of gentle... So the Bob Hoover, 1G, yeah, water the, on the sort on of the creative, dash. you're painting a, a beautiful picture in the sky just with a smooth movements, smooth flying, and not necessarily high G, just enough to do the manoeuvres, move one from one to the other gracefully. Gracefully is, is the word, and gracefully about it. But definitely, you got to get upside down. Yeah, I, I'm glad I went helicopters for that reason, because I'm sure <laughs> if I stuck at it, but I just uh, it didn't work for me doing the, the fixed wing training, yeah. doing the air raids through, um, through Tamworth. But All, all right, so uh, you were Air Force through training. Um, at that stage, was it Point Cook, or where was it? Point Cook. 
I left home at a, at a fairly young age for various reasons. One of the predominant one of which was my father was a bit of a tyrant, and although he was a very well-to-do local uh, grazier, I decided it wasn't for me, and, and flying was what I really wanted. However, unless you were 21 in those days, your parent had to sign you in. Of course, he would not sign you. Oh, in. really? Okay. And yeah. My mother had been killed in a motor accident, and so she couldn't do it. So I sort of bummed around a little bit and did an engineering cadetship in Adelaide before the call came so strong that I gave away my engineering cadetship and applied for a pilot's course. Was the engineering aviation engineering or was... No, it was electrical engineering with the state authority, the Electricity Trust of South Australia, similar to Ergon and places like that. Well, we'll talk about the engineering side of aviation later on, but did, yeah. did that have a... You know, was that, did it have an impact later on or was it kind of... In the earlier stages, we did all sorts of engineering studies as well. Mechanical engineering, this is on my course. And that was good background to have because I got to understand the forces acting on aeroplanes even before I got to Point Cook. Okay. And then I went on to number 64 pilots course, started in October 1966. How many people on that? Well, initially we had 44, including some army pilots, yep. a great bunch of army pilots, with whom we just met for a reunion just a couple of weeks ago. And there were 44 began, uh, but only 21 graduated. Yeah. So it was a fair washout. Yeah. And 350 or 400 got through to uh, the interview, the board interview, and then uh, ended up with 21. Yeah, so it's definitely a pyramid type thing by the time you, you're yeah. seeing in a, in a machine. And most of us, uh, we, well, we, we trained on the Windjill at Point Cook for about 112 hours and then a similar number of hours on the Vampire at Rathbase Pierce north of Perth in Western Australia and we graduated off that and that was a part wooden, part metal aircraft. Yeah, we were talking just before we hit record and it's, you know, it still seems weird seeing a, a jet aircraft yes, with, with yeah. timber as a major component yeah. and, and you but, said plywood. But it was, it was a very strong aircraft and yeah. uh, you know, plus six G aerobatic yeah. and a delightful aircraft to fly. I was just reading something because it sat so tail heavy. There's something you couldn't stay in the one spot or you'd start melting the tail. That's right, yeah. Uh, later on, I worked at Hawker de Havilland and the original test pilot on the vampire was still there as a chief and he said that every time he flew a vampire, the fire trucks would follow him around Bankstown, Bankstown putting up the fires. But Hawker de Havilland built the vampires at Bankstown. Of course. I don't know. Because, like, again, through my pilot's course, the, the Air Force guys were pretty much had their eyes set on, on jets and hornets and things like that. They did. And, and I don't know if it's the same for you, but was it a, you know, initially was it a letdown going helicopters? or, well, or how, it how wasn't that really. I also wanted to go to fighters, and, and that dream had started when I was 13, riding my horse around the farm, and two sabre jets flew over, and having already decided to leave home, I said to my horse, Peggy, that's what I'm going to do, Peggy, and uh, she didn't answer in the negative, so I thought she agreed, so I trusted her, so that was my foremost thing, but off pilots, of course, the majority of us of the 21 went to helicopters, even though I wanted to go to fighters, I was not disappointed to go to, to choppers. My instructor was a, a very powerful naval officer on exchange with the Air Force. And he said that because I was a little older than the average, I was 23 when I started pilot school. He said, you need a war under your belt. Get some medals, get some experience in combat. And, and that'll uh, put you in good stead for getting to fighters maybe later on. And that was part of what I, what I did from then on. I just did 
the very best I could at anything I did yep. and was lucky enough to go on to fighters when I came back. But we went to Fairbairn from RAF Base Pierce, graduated, got our pilot's officer's stripe. And straight through on Iroquois at the stage or did you have another training no, machine? No, straight through on Iroquois. We started on the Bravo model. Yep. Our Bravo models had been in Vietnam. They were the first ones with 9 Squadron to go to Vietnam. And then as they were replaced with the Delta model and eventually the Hotel model, uh, all the Bravos were back at number 5 Squadron in Canberra, RAF Base Fairbairn, and they were used in the training role. And then we also got some D models with them, uh, and then we converted very easily onto the H model yep. when we got to uh, Vietnam. Our course lasted about five months, I think it was. Yep, okay. And we got was that your first helicopter experience? It was, yes. Yep. yep. And I, I just took to helicopters like a duck to water. I, loved, I just loved every aspect of it. Yep. Um, I used to love just getting out on the airfield and challenging myself in coordination things about going around in circles and then going around in circles backwards, going around in circles with your nose to the middle, rotating as you go and going up and down as you go. Just lots of fun. And, and then to use a helicopter to its limits as far as I'm concerned, it was far more difficult than using a fixed wing to its limits. Okay, fair enough. Yep. And uh, you probably would agree with that with all your experience on choppers as well. Yeah, look, you know, I've never done particularly advanced fixed wing stuff. I did, you know, multi-engine instrument rating things like that before yeah. I went on, on course, but that was it. I knew I had mm. a, a job flying mm. a fixed wing, but, uh, you know, I never loved the fact that I've been able to fly helicopters. And, uh, yes. and it was never on the original plan. It just seemed to right. happen. And yeah, it's fantastic. Well, I think most of the fellows that came on to choppers with me really loved the experience. Uh, some stayed on choppers and became instructors. Others went on to other aircraft like the C-130, Hercules, Caribous, and myself and another pilot officer at the time, Brian Brown, we were the first two from 9 Squadron to go on to uh, fighters. We'd both flown gunships predominantly and base commander at the time was a World War II hero, Bay Adams. A lot of people, certainly in Air Force circles, will have heard the name of Bay Adams he featured in books by uh, Pierre Klosterman, a uh, Frenchman in the RAF, The Big Show and Flames in the Sky, flying typhoons and tempests, doing amazing work over Europe. And he used to fly with us as a co-pilot. And he said to us some months before we were due to leave up there after a 12-month tour, where do you want to go? And in unison, we looked at each other and then looked at him and said, we want to go to fighters. And he said that the head shed in Canberra believes that if you fly a helicopter, you can't think fast enough to go and fly jet yeah. fighters. In his words, he said, that's bullshit. And he said, if you two want to write out general applications to go to fighters, he said, I will fight the good fight for you. I'm sure we owe him a depth of gratitude for supporting us. Because once we got there and we passed the course, the floodgates opened and a whole lot of more helicopter pilots eventually became through to be squadron commanders of Hornet squadrons, F-111 squadrons. Yeah, I think Angus Houston. Angus Houston. was a chief of Air Force and then Defence Force. He was a helicopter man to begin with. And he came and visited us when we were in Solomon Islands. And, right, uh, yes. I was in the aircraft, but apparently, yeah, he jumped in for one of the flights in the, in the yeah. co-pilot seat, and the guy at the pilot, well, their OC, mm. he was an instructor, so he gave him the controls, and yeah. he slotted straight into formation, mm. and, uh, yeah, he was back into it and, uh, as the chief of Defence Force. Yeah, but the experience in Vietnam was... One of pretty total enlightenment, as you might imagine, flying in a in a war zone where you don't know where the enemy is and our standard operating procedure when you were flying from point A to point B, you flew above small arms fire, which was about 1,500 feet, and we were fortunate. We didn't see very much in the way of 50 calibre machine guns in our province. That's a whole different ballgame when you get up the bigger anti-aircraft. 
yep. weapons and the day that you go out and you're captain of an aircraft and you know that you're going to get shot at is a day where you learn a lot of things about yourself. Yeah, I can imagine. I suppose going through the back of your mind is, you know, am I going to scrib it out? No, I can't because I've got this crew with me and, and the troops on the ground. So it's a fleeting thing. I'm sure most people had it. But then you concentrate on what you've been trained to do and then the mission takes over and you do all of your procedures. Pretty soon you, you're talking on multiple radios, coordinating operations and maybe pulling out a special air service patrol in a hot extraction. Hot extraction is when the enemy attacks them. They might have been in the jungle for a couple of weeks and they've been detected by the enemy. So they're chased and then the first thing they used to do was call for the gunships to break the contact and then the slicks troop carrying aircraft and resupply aircraft would follow along and airborne commander would direct operations and pull them out. Very exciting times, especially if it was under fire. Well, let's, let's talk about that then. So let's talk about the Bush Ranger introduction and the early days of yes. the Australian Bush Rangers. So people in the US who are listening, I guess Bush Rangers back in Australian history were you know very similar to cowboys, but essentially they were outlaws, yeah, outlaws really. They, they, were, they were what Americans would call outlaws. Yeah. yeah. But it kind of built up a bit of mythology and Ned Kelly, so it was kind of romanticised a little That's bit right. there. Yeah. All right. But uh, initially, Ned, I guess we had 16, I think we had 16 Hueys in nine squadron in Vietnam. Yeah, in round figures, yes. And the early days would relied on US um, yes up, up until 1969 early 1969 our slick operations fort protection had uh, US Army units of various kinds flying Charlie model gunships yep very heavily laden and in fact as an interesting side they were so sometimes so heavily laden with weapons fuel and their crews they actually had small wheels attached to the front of the skids oh so they could roll uh, and they roll off. forward Oh, the yeah. wheels, they roll along on the, on, the, on the wheels and the crew chief, he would actually run alongside until oh, they got so they in, in. into translational <laughs> loop and then they'd jump onto the skids and then you'd have a few bang, bang, bang and then it would shudder and, and walk it away oh, yeah, in translational lift. We never had to do that because our aircraft had plenty of power. It's a long story, the development of the Australian gunships, but needless to say, a lot of in-country initiative and hard work went into developing a configuration that would work for us. And was it a bit of a, you know, hear some stories about a bit of barter exchange. You know, you'd, you'd turn up at the, the well, local PX store with a bunch of something or other and you'd well, walk away with a minigun. And... A bunch of Australian slouch hats or even cases of Australian beer and you'd walk away with a maybe a minigun or some <laughs> minigun parts. Uh, we had a story goes that we, one of our equipment officers, or they call logistics today. He was a, a white Russian, a really delightful man, Gene Konoshenko, and he was universally loved by all. And he, he knew how to work the American system. And he would go up to the, the large long bin supply base and they'd land in the 9th Squadron chopper and he'd have a corporal with him. The corporal would go into this big base and go up to the desk and see who the senior man was. And he'd come out and say, it's a captain, sir. So Gene Konoshenko would put his hand in his pocket and bring out a handful of American lapel badges and he would always outrank the guy by at least one rank. And then he'd go in because they didn't understand Australian ranks whatsoever. We were stripes and they had badges and he'd go in and they'd see this American, maybe a full colonel's badge in the and full colonel's a god in American system. And he'd go in and the guy would be a captain at the desk. And they'd, they'd say, well, we'll have one of those and one of those and one of those. And then the Australian would say, we don't have to sign for that, do we, captain? Uh, 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 no, sir, no, sir. So he'd say, <laughs> so we're operating at the edges of the system the, here to get load, this load the helicopter, capability up and going. Load, load the helicopter up, corporal. 
Yeah, and of course, the air crew got involved as well. We'd go down sometimes of a night after operations had completed and at least give moral support to the uh, armament men and the engineers who were actually building these up. And it really was a great team effort and everyone believed in the mission so so strongly and it was a really exciting thing to be involved in because that meant that we have total control of all of our assets to yep. support the army for all the sort of operations that they did. And we ended up with four um, machines configured as gunships? Four, four configured as gunships. Three, three were usually available at any one time. An operation carried out with two Bushranger gunships. Bushranger was the core site. Yep. We had Bushranger 7-1, 7-2, and 7-3, and 7-4. And a light fire team was two gunships, yep. and a heavy fire team was three or more. And that turned out to be a great way of operating because there were days when there'd be either an SAS patrol or more likely a battalion in the field, in the jungle, in contact with NVA, North Vietnamese Army, or Viet Cong, or combined groups of both, and they'd be in a, a prolonged contact, which meant we could stay on station. We had twin miniguns, fixed forward-firing miniguns, twin M60s on either side for the door gunner and the, the crewman, crewman on the right-hand side, the door gunner, who was normally an air defence guard, seconded to flying. That was able to, when you flew your, your attack patterns. Yes, yeah, so I guess most people listening will be familiar. So if we treat this as a bit of a, you know, yeah. talk me through if I was going to go and, the, and do the it idea, today. Uh, and, yeah. and, the, and the men who, who put all the thought into it at the beginning elected not to have the movable miniguns because they felt it was one more thing that can go wrong. Sure. The fixed miniguns with a fold-down fixed infinity sight for rockets and miniguns was very effective. Yeah, I heard the sights were like X. Mustang sites or something or other? Did they come off something else? No, no. They, they were specific design okay. design for the choppers, yeah. They were up above the, the windscreen and they'd fold down. After a while, though, you could actually put a chinograph mark on the windscreen and you became so much part of the aircraft. You could put the rockets and miniguns where you wanted them, even if you didn't use the site. Okay. But we normally you did use the site. Yeah. That pattern that you flew was designed to have one aircraft attacking and then as he broke off and yours broke towards the, the friendly so that if you got stitched up you were going to land on a force land in a, yeah. in a friendly area rather than an enemy area so when the miniguns and rockets were finished firing you rolled say to the left and break off by that time our door gunners that had their door guns control the traversing pattern they operated on was such that they had a cam device that would stop the gun from actually getting up where they could shoot the rotor or the tail off the aircraft. So they would begin firing immediately we broke and started to turn and then they would follow the target around as you turned away. And by the time they finish, the next aircraft is rolling in and he's ready to put mini guns or rockets on the All right, so on, the on your breakaway, you must then pull the power in and hightail it back to the start of the circuit so you can be you ready to go. And you'd climb back up to okay. 15, so, and we're 15, starting at um, about a fifteen degree, yeah, okay. fifteen degree angle, yeah. And so you just basically dive, shallow dive on the yeah, target, shallow dive. And what's the best speed? It's like uh, maximum one hundred and twenty, but but normally back uh, 100, 110, So you had a little bit to play with. All right. So in terms of the Huey speed range, so you kept it pretty much moving as fast as you could go. One hundred and twenty yeah. was was the maximum. Yeah. There would be times where you'd be pushing at at the bottom, so you had to be very careful pulling out that you didn't go into blade stall or something like that, because that would have been quite a disaster. And they they talk about the nine five heavy. So the max takeoff weight was you know nine thousand five hundred pounds and often well, you hear about 9.5 heavy in terms of lifting off and probably well we actually had clearance 
for Maori worthiness people for five hundred pounds over. So okay, no, a thousand pounds over. I think it was to ten five up to ten five. Okay, yeah, no, it might have been back to ten thousand, but it was more than the nine five ninety five hundred pounds that was the standard maximum uh, liftoff weight. Yeah, and we we trained up when these aeroplanes had been built. We trained up in uh, March and April of nineteen sixty nine. And the first operational mission was supposed to be on the 20th. But one of the army units actually got into trouble on the 16th. And I was flying with squadron leader Daru, and he was the leader. And we actually conducted the first operational mission on the 16th of uh, April 1969. And we continued from there on all the way through. As far as I'm concerned, 9th Squadron uh, had a great record, had a great relationship with the battalions, especially with the Special Air Service because we were first in to put them in, to cover them going in, because sometimes a special air service in search of a slick aircraft could go hot just as they jump out of the aircraft and run into the jungle. It was the opportune time for the enemy to start firing at them and at the chopper. And then the excitement started to come when you actually then had to go back in mm. and pull these guys out before they were overrun by the enemy. And that was a real coordination exercise for the commander airborne. Yeah, there's one other story I think you, you sent through. So often the slick, you know, is jungle, so the slick would have to sit there in treetops and, and often right. throw a rope out. If, or, if they couldn't inch. land, there were, were uh, insertions that were done by landing, there were insertions that were done by rope drops, and likewise for extractions. There, there were extracts done by uh, by rope. We had a rope system fitted to the floor of the aircraft with five ropes, and, and these SAS patrol members would have a harness on with clips on the top of their shoulders. When the helicopter came to a hover, they'd drop the ropes down. They'd clip on to their shoulder harness. Then the helicopter would take the weight, then lift up, and then you'd have to get them clear of the jungle and then fly up to above small arms fire so they didn't get shot and then fly them to a, a known clear safe area where you could come to a hover drop them off get them back in the lower machine. them down they'd pick up the ropes as they came in throw it all in the chopper and then uh, jump in and away they'd go but they they sometimes got very excited because you might be sitting there at the hover and the crew chief would be telling you what's going on they're, they're putting their harness on okay they're all on got the thumbs up from the patrol command take the weight and the pilot would lift up and then as you're lifting up to get these up fellas up through the jungle of course they're all there's five of these men some quite big but also with a big lot of gear strapped to the bodies as well water ammunition and weapons Contents, yeah. and then they would start firing as well as the door gunners and the mini and the mini guns of the gunships that are covering it you'd hear these shots coming from below the aircraft you oh my god <laughs> we're, we're being shot at the crewmen would say, oh, don't worry, sir, it's only the SAS doing a bit of spraying around. And, and they were linked. Sometimes, if they didn't fire together, they'd sp- spin around a little uh, bit. okay, yep. Yeah, but it was all a, all a good operation. And then we'd fly them to a safe spot. Oh, and, it's a bit of danger in that, you know, the fact well, that you're sitting there on the end of a road for those guys with was, no yeah. cover. And, yeah, uh, uh, one of the safety aspects of it was it was coming up out of the jungle and any enemy's troops in the jungle would have had a limited field of view to fire being on the ground but it was it was quite dangerous and we used to think the SAS guys were absolutely mad and they used to think that we were absolutely mad well uh, you know it might be the same story but there's one there where um, I think you were in the the gunship covering but as the guys were coming up the pilot who was sitting in the hover had to turn the tail to basically put a bit of aircraft between where the rounds were coming from and then the crew and the helicopter so they basically take some rounds and I think you guys flew down and put yourself between. That, that, that was an extract of uh, some wounded troops from a 5 RAR, which was number 5 Royal Australian Regiment Battalion 
Infantry Battalion in an area called the Hutsit to the west-southwest of the base of Nuridat. They'd been in in a really heavy combat in a, in a well-dug-in bunker system, and we in the gunships were there first, and we had to coordinate bringing in some dust-off aircraft, which are the rescue aircraft. And they were nine-squadron? They were nine-squadron nine yeah. nine aircraft. And they had to come in and, and sit hovering while the, the wounded guys were pulled up in a Stokes litter by winch, not the rope extraction like the SAS, but by winch. Uh, and it got quite very heavy for them, very heavy contact. And uh, I still have an original tape recording, the words of which are used by an ex-5RAR man who wrote a, an account of that battle on the ground and the battle in the air, which is a, a very interesting thing, which I'll give you anyway. I'll give you a copy of the, the audio sometime as well. Okay, I might be able to include snippets. Yeah, yeah. And, and you can feel, you can, you can hear the, the urgency of the people on the ground naturally because they were under heavy fire and they had wounded people and I think there was one killed in action as well and that really motivated motivated us to do our job and to be in there and there was one situation where the dust off aircraft D-U-S-T-O-F-F Americans said that was dedicated untiring support to our fighting forces and that sounded like a pretty good name but the term was dust off so he's sitting there being shot at and the company commander on the ground was telling him he's being shot at and to to stop him being shot down with the troop on the in the Stokes litter being pulled up we actually had to fly between them and the the enemy to 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 suppress the fight maybe we were drawing the fire but we were suppressing because we were more far more heavily armed and our twin m60s on the door gun uh, were really earning their keep that day so you're still doing runs or you were basically hovering in between well in in, we were the lead aircraft and, and ted Creelman, flight lieutenant Ted Creelman, who was my captain for the day, a New Zealander on exchange with Nine Squad. He elected and just told the crew we're going to have to fly between to make sure the dust off aircraft doesn't get shot down. And we're all happy with that. And, uh, or not happy with it, but we knew that had to be done. Some yep. things just had to be done. And uh, Ted flew us through there and drew the fire. And, of course, the door gunners were able to suppress the fire at the same time. So it probably wasn't as dangerous as it sounds. Yeah. Uh, but it certainly was effective, and the uh, the dust off aircraft was able to pull their Stokes litter up with the wounded troop in it and uh, fly them back to the hospital. But there were other aircraft involved that day. There were the two dust off aircraft that came in in sequence, and there was the battalion commander, Colonel uh, Colin Khan, Lieutenant Colonel Colin Khan. He was up in, a, in an army Sioux helicopter helping to coordinate everything, and it was a really good operation in terms of coordinating at the front, by the people on on the, the ground and in the air, without any interference from any headshed. And Ted Creelman was an extremely good operator. And uh, whilst we got shot out, none of our gunships actually got any bullets through them that day. It was a, an interesting exercise and, and one that sort of helped save the day for, for five RER. In terms of aircraft emergencies, so did you have you know, any emergencies you had to sort of deal with while you are flying over there? Um, to remember. There were a number of emergencies that various people had like hydraulic failures flight controls being hydraulically controlled if you had a hydraulic failure for whatever reason you had to fly the aircraft back to base with no hydraulics and then just do a, a running landing onto the Luscombe field normally which was at Nuidat the army headquarters where the task force headquarters was and where the army aviation were and uh, there were others where aeroplanes were were shot up and had to land and be pulled out I had uh, 
my own experience was pulling in to do a power check after takeoff out of uh, Wung Tau. We had about a 15 minute flight north to the army base to begin the day. I pulled into maximum power. You did a power check to see what your maximum power was available on that day with that aircraft. And I just pulled it into maximum power and it felt like a, we'd been hit with a 105 artillery shell. Yep. In um. actual fact. And we're only about 200 feet over the uh, the mudflats to the north of Tau airfield. And the fourth stage compressor had failed, which was not a common, but it was something that did happen with that, those engines at that time. And once the compressor had failed, the blades yeah, disintegrated and it just about wipes out the whole engine. And the interesting thing was that from 200 feet, and again, it's a, it's a, it's a mark of respect to our training, we immediately had done the, the immediate actions before you realise it. You probably have been through the same thing yourself. You've had good training, problem goes wrong, and all of a sudden you've, you've done. You've dropped the collective down, you're monitoring the RPM, you're looking at a spot where you're going to land, there's, and there's only one when you're 200 feet. It's the one that you can, yeah, that's right, the right. bit of ground you can see in front of you. Chris Beattie was my co-pilot, and both of us had had a chance to get a, a radio call out, a mayday call on different frequencies. Within just a very few minutes of us doing a zero speed landing onto the mudflats, we had a Chinook there, we had another Iroquois there picking up our passengers and us and taking us back to base. And we had an engineering crew there that were up on top of the aeroplane putting the, the D-bolts and the straps onto the, the big JC. It's like a race, race car team pit crew. Yeah, yeah. Was, yeah. And from the time we hit the ground to the aeroplane being lifted off by it, it was probably under 20 minutes, wow. which was a Quite an amazing feat. Because, um, yeah, again, looking through the pictures, I saw one picture of uh, a Chinook lowering a, a, a gunship at Nui Dad, I think it was. So it yeah. In that machine, I'm not sure. No, that, that was another one. Okay, That yeah. was another one, yeah. And that was a good example of the cooperation we had between the Army, US Army, because our Army didn't have the Chinooks at that stage like they have now. And uh, the place that picked up our radio calls, uh, the tower and our headquarters, immediately had cover there. Not that we're any great danger from the enemy, but we could have been because it wasn't far from Long Son Island where they used to launch rockets at our air force, at our, our base at uh, Vung Tau. And the other interesting aside, by the time I actually got back into the hangar, the aeroplane was in there and a fellow pilot, Ian Fogarty, had arranged for the troops to put a sign on the side of the, the aircraft that said, this was done by a slackjack bastard from the bush. <laughs> And he's called me Slackjack the Bastard from the bush ever yeah, since. since. Yeah. And thankfully to say that, it wasn't my fault that the uh, compressor blew, but we managed to get it down and all walked away. We'll cut this episode off there and be back with part two of Jack's interview next week, where we continue to revisit some of his stories from Vietnam, but also talk about the importance of really knowing your engineering and aircraft technical knowledge and where they can shine through in a tough spot. This episode was brought to you by, well, you. You can now get your hands dirty and be part of helping to produce the show through supporting it on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash rotarywingshow or rotarywingshow.com forward slash support. If you get some value from the episodes and are building up your database of experiences of what to do if something goes wrong for you in the air, then you have the option of sponsoring the show to the tune of even just a buck a show. The funds go towards hosting and editing costly episodes, and you'll make my wife very happy as an added bonus. 
You might have also noticed a, a better overall audio quality in this episode over the, the last two. Sarah is our awesome new editor and is working hard to help me on that side of things. Previous two episodes was me having a crack at it myself. Sarah has also been working at a disadvantage because of Jack and I were sitting in the one place on the, the one audio track here, which makes it that much harder and there's a bird and the dog in the background. So hopefully you didn't notice too much. The dual audio tracks when I'm normally doing on Skype where the connection is good, I've got two different tracks, does make it for an easier edit. Sarah's neighbor is also a helicopter pilot and she's already introduced him to the show. So if you are listening Sarah's neighbor, then a big hello. Anyway, I just thought I'd fill you in on some of the behind the scenes stuff that goes on. As always, please do check out the photos and show notes over at the website at rotarywingshow.com. And if you're on iTunes and think the show is worth it, then a five-star review really does help people to find us. Don't forget about your Christmas list plan. And fingers crossed, leave it lying around and you'll get something that you actually really want and can use this year. You've been listening to the Rotary Wing Show. Thank you again so much for hanging out with me. Talk to you in the next episode.